We are almost to the end of Romans. Uh, we are Romans chapter 16, and uh, before we step into the text, I'm going to invite you just to uh, bow with me for a moment as we present ourselves before the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are just humbled at the reality of the offer that you give to us through Christ. The savagery of his sacrifice and his crucifixion is probably reflects the depth of uh, the immorality and the evil of humanity, to take the one who was God's son, who was responsible for bringing our lives into existence and all things into existence and rejecting him in such a way that they crucified him on a cross. But it's only that kind of sacrifice that satisfied your wrath and judgment upon sinful humanity, and it's only when we surrender to you and step back into your family through faith in Christ that we are protected from future judgment. Your son has told us that unless we have the faith of a little child, that we will never enter the kingdom. And often we complicate the reality of what it means to, uh, as it were, be a Christian or be right with you. We still have all kinds of people, not only in the world but in churches, that think that if they just perform well enough, if, if they try to do enough good things or if we try to avoid enough bad things that because you love us, you will automatically accept us into, into this better place or this heaven when we die. And yet, the truth of the scriptures couldn't be further from, the, from that reality. It is not a sense that just because you love us that we'll all get there. It's not based on works. It's not based on our innate goodness. It's not based on our performance. Father, it, it boils down to the reality that we're willing to recognize our sin and surrender to you and accept the forgiveness that you offer to us in Christ. And so, Father, we are deeply grateful that we stand before you all as equals because you've accepted us on the same basis of the sacrifice of your son. Father, as we think about the reality and the implications of that, as we draw closer to the close of this text, we think of some really simple realities that flow from this that often we take for granted, and we pray that you'd resurge within us an appreciation of the people that you've put around us in this journey and in this walk with Christ. Thank you for our time. We keep entrusting ourselves to you, and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. When I was growing up, probably uh, one of the favorite books and uh, little movies that we use is Dr. Seuss. It was all a fun little cartoon book that talked about friendships and relationships, and one of the uh, great statements that Dr. Seuss made was, to the world you may be just one person, but to the one person you may be the world. Uh, it may not come from the scriptures, but I think when we look about child dedications and whatever for Smith and other little children, that's very true of their parents, that they may not be very important to the larger scope of the world, but his parents are the absolute world to him. Obviously, there's other things that we understand in terms of relationships and especially friendships with other people. Uh, there's lots of married couples that aren't very good friends. There's lots of families who hang together because they have to, they're blood relatives, but the problem is, is they're not very friendly. We know all kinds of people growing up that called themselves the, our friends and then end up throwing us under a bus because of certain circumstances. We have enjoyed friendships, we've celebrated with friends, we've been in the journey with many friends, and we've been betrayed by them. 
And so the idea of friendship is maybe a really simple concept, but it's often a very tricky reality. I, I think of uh, the scriptures, and we often go back to David and Jonathan, who typified an amazing friendship between the two of them, where they made sacrifices and had each other's back and were willing to, to go to great extremes to support each other in God's call and what that looked like. As we think about the text this morning, we have a part that I suspect most of us read through pretty quickly and don't pay much attention to. It comes where Paul is writing his greetings, as he does in many of his letters, where he simply passes on that we're going, I'm going to greet you. And for most of us, it's kind of like just say hi to people. But I want to pause in this text just to give you some ideas about what friendship really means in the context of what Christ does for people. Obviously, there's some of these people that in this text that we know a lot about, and there's others that we don't know anything about. But I think it's valuable for us to, to take a glimpse at it before we rush on to the end of the book of Romans. It says in Romans 16, verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, uh, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, still, it seems pretty pedestrian, but I want to pause and walk through the reality of this. Uh, you've had friends, and maybe you are one of these people, that, that, that as far as a friend, we have really needy friends around us. They seem to have deep emotional needs that often don't seem to get satisfied, and you've traveled with people who just constantly have needs, and it's really hard to know what to do as a friend because it doesn't matter what you try, it doesn't seem to fix anything. We have individuals who are friends, but they're consumers. They always end up taking from us far more than what they seem to be interested in giving to us, and it makes it hard to hang with those kinds of friends because they're constant takers. There's other individuals that are demanding. If you're my best friend, how come you're not doing these things for me? Uh, there, there's expectations that people have in terms of being best friends that are very different for women as, as for guys. You know, sometimes my best friend, if I talk to him every couple of years, we're good. If, if a gal has a best friend and you're not calling him every day, then you are hating me or something. It's, it's hard to get our hand around it. Some people feel very entitled. They'll just call you up and expect you to do things and, and help them out with stuff at the drop of a hat like you've got nothing going on in life. And it's sort of hard to know how to respond to that. Some friends, friendships are very entangled. They just seem to be enmeshed in so many things and so many issues, it's hard to, to, to really know how to navigate that kind of thing. There are some friends who you would describe have tremendous amount of drama in their life. It doesn't matter what the week is or what the day, there's always something that's a crisis. And it's sometimes hard to know whether they're just making the stuff up or they're really in crisis. Because we all react differently to life. What some people just absolutely get anxious about, other people just ignore like it's no big deal. We have all kinds of things that some feel like they're distant friends, others are exploitive. Some friends are always giving and some are absolutely timely that they always know the right thing to say at the right particular moment and they, are, they literally breathe life into our journey. 
Some friends are inspiring, but what we want to look at is this little collage, this little hodgepodge of information that Paul gives to us at the end of this letter where he identifies a bunch of people that, as I said, some we know really well and some we don't know hardly at all. They have these really weird, funny names that we can't pronounce, and we don't really know much about them except for what he gives to us here. And yet, within the fabric of this list of names are real people. They're really no different than you are. And names help identify us, but unfortunately with some people they help stereotype us. It's like when I left home, I left home and literally a couple of years after I uh, got out of high school, I went to technical college and got a civil engineering diploma. I went off to Bible college and basically that was my exit out of the home. It's always interesting when you go home after you've been out for several years because mom and dad usually get stuck back when you were like 17 and they still talk to you like you're 17. And they don't know that you can do anything more than what you were doing at 17. Uh, I remember having this discussion with my mom. It was years after, and I was told her I did something like some, a financial course. I can't remember what it was. And she goes, oh, I'm so thankful because I wasn't sure whether you knew any of this stuff or not. I'm kind of like, okay, mom. Sometimes we make decisions that make us look like we're still 17. And often it comes in relationships. It's amazing how fast someone can get ticked off because someone said something that didn't like and we start acting like 17-year-olds. It's amazing how people even regress further that when people tell them the truth about stuff, how they regress even further and they act like elementary school kids having temper tantrums and, and mouthing off in ways that we can't hardly imagine. But this list of friends I wanna just touch on, hopefully just to encourage you this morning. Because I think often one of the things we take most for granted is the friends that, people put in our, that God has put in our life. Uh, we used to have, and we still do, I had before uh, we gutted our offices this last week and painted, I had a, a little uh, rack on there and it had encouragement cards on it. We used to use them at different times in, in services and ministry. And, I, and the reason we brought those out and handed them out is because it's amazing how far you can get down the road where you realize you haven't taken the time to encourage somebody who's supposed to be a good friend. That life is very chaotic. Life is hectic and it's sucking the life out of so many of our friends. If there's any time in life that we need good, quality, Christian, solid friendships, it's now. And so Paul talks about different friendships here, and I will give them certain labels. It's simply to help us uh, think about them in a certain way, but he begins really with Timothy. And, and he comes off and he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Now, it doesn't seem to be very profound, but I, what I, we need to know that Paul ran into Timothy in Acts chapter 16. He was on his first missionary journey, and he ran into Timothy, who his mother was... Uh, Eunice, and she was Jewish, but she was a believer. Somehow the gospel had gotten to her already. And he has a grandmother, as we discover in 2 Timothy 1.5, who both became sort of the spiritual anchors in their home, apparently. Because when he writes to Timothy, he says, listen, this faith isn't accidental. You've already got people in your life, just as we talked about the child dedication, where we've got family members who have gone before us who understand this sense of faith and by their own life experience have wisdom to share to us. Half the book of the front end of Proverbs says, sons, listen to your dads. Listen to the wisdom of your mother. Listen to individuals who understand this faith walk with Jesus in ways that you think you know, but you really don't know. And it takes 
tremendous sense of wisdom for individuals to listen to others, especially when it comes to family, about what this spiritual journey really looks like in the fabric and the crucible of real life. And, and so Timothy sees Timothy, or Paul sees Timothy's faith, and he says, listen, here's the kind of man who has the character, that I want to take him with me. And so he, he works with the family and he says, listen, I, I need this young man on here because this is a, f- a friendship that's built around ministry. And so Timothy basically took him under his wing and he trained him, he invested in him, he poured his life into him, and he helped him to understand, walk with Jesus on a way that wasn't just for self-interest, but he, he found somebody that has this, this passion to be a friend with him so that he could then turn around and invest in other people. To me, that's the, that's the heart of, of what we want to be as a disciple making church, is that we need to raise up more and more people who have this, this heart to be friends with people, not just to satisfy their own needs, or not to be alone, or not to be lonely, but, but I have the sufficiency of God's grace to help me grow to a point where I want to invest in someone else and help them discover the thrill and the joy and the satisfaction of what it means to live life on mission for Jesus Christ. I remember when I was in high school, I don't remember much about it, I was, uh, came from a split home as many of you know, but I'll never forget when our youth pastor, he was actually an adult volunteer, took us ice fishing. It was, it was out of the box a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, whatever we were doing, and the fact that he actually wanted to hang with me outside of the program was kind of like, whoa. But I'll never forget the fact that he just took time to invest in us outside of the program. It, it was really quite impressive to me as a young teenager that he actually wanted to hang with me. Because we got all kinds of people who are convinced they're worthless and they don't know anything and they can't contribute anything. And someone who takes the time like Paul did with Timothy, and Timothy ultimately did with other people, to say, you're valuable enough to invest in. We got all kinds of people that fill our churches that feel lonely and disenfranchised and, and by themselves and feel worthless and not good enough, and what they really need is someone to just walk alongside them and say, listen, you're worth investing in. And that's part of the whole fabric of what we don't wanna do here at Oak Grove, is keep raising up people who, who rely so heavily on Christ that they understand that they have something to offer. And so this becomes part of his ministry partner. Grant and I joke about this all the time, although it's his joke, not mine, is that he says the problem when your friends are in ministry with you is you never get to spend time with them. Because they're, they're always so busy investing in other people that wave each other at the water cooler, we grab lunch once in a while, but... You, People who are in ministry don't get to hang out with their friends because they're so busy investing in others that, but the danger there is that often people who are leading ministries are often the most loneliest because nobody bothers taking the time to say, how you doing? They're so busy giving and sometimes it's their fault because they've stopped allowing people to speak into their life and one of the critical things here is that between Paul and Timothy, they got to speak into each other's life. And we need to have that kind of courage. For kids who are just starting, the greatest voices they have is their parents. But I'll tell you, when I was growing up, one of the things that made the most impression is when our friends' parents said the same thing as my parents, because you always think your parents are nuts, right? 
Oh, they're making up all of these rules for me, and, and it's not fair, and I don't get to do what all the other kids do. You know, that's a dream. But then when someone else's parents reinforce the very same thing, I'm kind of like, oh, well, maybe they're not quite so nuts after all. Those parents believe the same thing my parents do, which is incredible resource in the family of God. Because parents need us to be saying the same things that they're saying into their kids. Because it's amazing the power of what that is. Paul's second individual that he talks about are these three individuals, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Most people speculate that Lucius is a longer version of Luke, who might have been Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, but there's some problems with that. It's very possible, but he doesn't talk about Luke the same way he does in other situations, that he's Luke the physician. I, I'm not sure exactly whether that fits or not. If it, if it is, he really fits into the ministry framework, but Luke, we're not told much about here. Jason is an individual that Paul ran into in Acts 17. When he was in Thessalonica sharing the gospel, Jason was an individual who was hosting people. And there's other individuals involved in this discussion, but if you'll remember, the Jews became very jealous of these Paul announcing this new Jesus that was coming on the scene and basically drawing people away from their religion and their legacy and their heritage and their cultural ethnic makeup into this new religion and they caught some flack for it. In fact, if you read Acts 17, five through nine, they went looking for Paul and Barnabas and trying to deal with them and shuttle them out of the family and they couldn't find them because Jason and some of these other individuals hid them We know that from verse 10 where they snuck them out of the city to get them out of there. But Jason got hauled out in front of these people. They sort of seemed to threaten they were going to beat him up, but they hauled them out in front of the city judicial people. And he literally got so intense that he finally had to pay a bails bond in order to get set free to go back to his home. We don't know much about Sosipater, But Paul says to every one of these guys, they're kinsmen in Christ, which most commentators will agree. That means these are all people of Jewish heritage that have, as it were, crossed over and put faith in Christ, and so we would call them Messianic Jews. And the reason that's important is because often we feel like the experiences we go through, we're all by ourselves. And these are important friends to Paul because they know exactly what it means to grow up in a Jewish home. They know exactly what it means to grow up in that culture with all the rules of the Old Testament and all the things that they did by tradition and by choice. And then, in a sense, to step away from that to become a follower of Jesus. And clearly, Acts 17 becomes an example that the Jews were pretty hostile towards that. And yet, these guys know where Paul has come from because they've journeyed in the same footsteps as he has in their growing up years and in, their, in the, how they were raised and what it looked like. I mean, you and I have heard stories from people in this group that says, man, when we trusted Christ, our parents went to church, but they were pretty upset about us seemingly believing something different than what they grew up with. That's really hard. 
That really takes a tremendous courage, and yet one of the beauties of the body of Christ is there's really nothing new under the sun. If you've gone through the hardship of being rejected by family or friends or parents or from an environment that you grew up with because now you're a Jesus freak following him, there's others that know what that's that's like. To one degree or another, there's individuals who have been rejected by family or even persecuted by family and others because they're abandoning the family heritage. They're abandoning the the legacy that they were building and the things that they were comfortable with. And even though for some day in our day and age now where it's Christmas and Easter and then weddings and funerals, it's amazing how hostile people can be when all of a sudden it's like, I want to follow Jesus every day. I, I, I want to be part of a faith community every single week. I want to be involved with friends who are going to make a difference. And they often feel like you're rejecting them because now you're choosing new friends. Some of you know what that feels like. But Paul says, these guys are my kinsmen. They know what I've gone through. They know what I've experienced. They know what I've had to struggle through. They know what I've had to set aside. They get me. And that's part of the beauty of being transparent and sharing our stories is there's people around you who will know what you're going through. And there's value to having people who what I call are legacy friends who've walked in your footsteps in some similar way. You're not alone in those journeys. These are individuals who share the same, call them inheritance friends but they're insightful because they can move alongside and they can speak into your life in a way to say, listen, I understand what's going on here. I've been there. I've faced the same kind of prejudice. I've faced the same kind of religious stereotype. I've, I've faced the same rejection that we're experiencing. I get it and I'm in this with you. I know what you're going through. And so they're insightful individuals that are friends that are invaluable in this process. They share the similar journey. Some of you have done that. You grew up in a spiritually split home. You've had family who have been hostile to the reality of Jesus in your life. Or maybe it's something more basic. You grew up in a single home where mom or dad wasn't there. You're not quite sure how to navigate what it means to parent if you're a single parent or what does it look like to fill in the gaps. Sometimes you grew up in an environment where your self-worth was hammered to pieces, whether it was someone's choice, whether it was abuse, or whether it was just the frailty of your own sense of perspective that really felt like I'm worthless, and there's people in the body of Christ that have been there and seen the grace of God help them rise above that to a measure that they can encourage you in that journey. Friendships are absolutely invaluable. Now I know that we live in a world where some people like they want to move to Mount Everest and never talk to anybody in their life. But I would dare say that often those people are individuals who don't feel like they're worthy of it or others are not worthy of their friendship. There's always stuff going on in our life that shapes the the priorities that we make. And in a world that's all about surviving now, one of the desperate needs of people in our world is People who will befriend them, not because of what they can get from them, but because they can be in the journey and they can offer hope through the gospel of Jesus, no matter whether they've lost a job or the family's rejected them or they have no idea what they're doing. 
Paul has what I call support friendships, Tertius. He's the one who says, I wrote the letter. Now, what that really means is he was a menuensis, which is a fancy word to say a secretary. You don't, there won't be a quiz on that at the end of it, see whether you remember the title for it in Greek, but he was the secretary, and the, the apostles often used individuals instead of them trying to write it all down. They kept their thoughts focused on what the Spirit of God wanted them to say, and they'd often have a secretary who'd write these things out. Paul will say on occasion, I'm writing this with my own hand. I'm putting my own personal note on this, but Tertius is an individual who's a secretary, and Paul probably paused to get a drink of water, so he's gonna go like, I'm gonna get this in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna send my own personal greeting to some of these people that I know. And, and so it tells me that he may not be the Apostle Paul, the great preacher, the great apostle, the great gospel church planter, but he knows some of these people because he has Christ in common with them. And he takes the opportunity to say, listen, I know some of you, I'm gonna write my own greeting in the middle of this thing and, and I wanna say hi to you and I greet you because I care about you. I call these kinds of people intentional friends. They take time no matter what the circumstances, no matter how busy they're at, they always seem to wanna take the time to connect with people that they care about. Well, you know that doesn't work for everybody. I mean, a lot of us, my, my wife and I go through this all the time. She'll say, she talks to my mom like probably once or twice a week. She says, when was the last time you talked to your mom? So I lie, so I don't look like I'm as bad as I, <laughs> I don't really, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But you know, it's so easy to get busy doing life that, you, that, that it sucks our willingness to pick up the phone and call somebody. That when we get really hectic and we've got a lot of things on our plate and we've got a lot of responsibilities and we've got a lot of chores and we've got to deal with finance, all these things, you can be three or four weeks down the road and realize you really haven't encouraged anybody. I mean, we know that we're the ones that need the encouragement because I'm drowning under all this stuff that I have to do, but, but here's Tertius, he's, he's a secretary, he's not really the important person in the discussion, but he takes the time to say, listen, I'm, I'm going to take this moment, I want to send my greetings to you because I care about you. I know people who are masters at this. I mean, they're on the phone constantly, but they're, they're constantly trying to figure out creative ways to connect with people that they care about. Us introverts, we're always worrying about not connecting with people because we don't want to offend them or do something that makes them upset with us. And that always becomes an issue of what are they gonna think about me rather than how can I encourage them? There's lots of us that get hung up on that but he's an invigorating relationship. You, the people who, out of the blue, try to track you down and say, hey, listen, I was just thinking and praying for you. I don't know what you're going through, I don't know if there's anything there, but I just wanted to connect with you. And there's something about that where a person would actually take time out of their life and all the things they have to do with it, they'd phone and say, hey, listen, I was just thinking about you. Sort of pick up the phone and go, what, really? Wow. That actually means something to people. And, and Tertius is doing that. He's, he's saying, I'm gonna slip this in here so I because I want to connect with these people. And it invigorates them. It actually inspires people when others go out of the way. And I it's taken me years and years and years and years and years 
to get over this sort of this self-brokenness that picking up the phone and calling somebody isn't an inconvenience and they won't hate you for it. It's not wrecking their day because you're interrupting something. It shows that you care. And yet uh, the unfortunate reality for many of us is we're just like way too busy to care about other individuals. I got my own stuff. In fact, if people really cared about me, they'd be phoning me, not the other way around. Then we get our nose out of joint because nobody cares about me. Nobody, nobody's phoned me for like two and a half days, so like, they must hate me now. And, and so, Tertius is a great example of somebody who thinks out of the box in his circumstances trying to care for people. There was a story by Bob Green that I ran into this week. He was, uh, lost his wife back in 2006 when this story came out. But he was so numb when he lost his wife that he basically felt dead. He didn't know what to do. They had the service and they kind of, people came and paid their respects and tried to help him. The hardest part was the next morning because all of a sudden the reality and the weight of not having a spouse around was, just seemed overwhelming. He didn't know quite what to do and the phone rang and normally he'd ignore it but he picked it up and it happened to be his friend Jack who didn't even live in the same city but had heard that he had lost his wife. And when he got on the phone, Jack simply said this, I flew into Chicago where this man was living and I said I took the first flight in this morning when I heard you lost your wife. And then he said this, I know you probably don't want to see anyone. He went on, that's all right, I've checked into a hotel, I'll just sit here in case you need me to do anything. I can do whatever you want or I can do nothing. Bob comes back and he says he meant it. He knew the best thing he could do was to be present in the same town. To tell me that he was simply there. And he did just sit there. I assumed he watched TV or did some work, but he waited until I gathered the strength to say I needed him. He helped me with things no man ever wants to need help with. Mostly he sat with me, and I knew I did not require, he, I did not require conversation. He did not welcome, I did not welcome chatter, did not need anything beyond the knowledge that he was there. He brought food for my children, and by sharing my silence, he got me through those days. That's what friendship's about. We don't have to fix everything. But sometimes it's just we need to creative learn how to be with people. Even if we don't fix it. Paul had evangelistic friends. We're told about Gaius. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11 through 16, we're told that Paul had baptized a number of different people, and Gaius was one of them, so he was very likely one of Paul's first converts in Corinth. And so Paul had the privilege to baptize him once he trusted Christ. But it's not so much what Paul did for him, it's what Gaius was about. He talks about him that he's been a host to me. In other words, he opened up his home, and even though at the time I was a stranger walking into town, and we're not told whether this happened before or after, it was probably, could have been both, that he welcomed him into his home and shared his resources and was hospitable to him. He said, in a sense, it took a huge burden off me because I didn't have to figure out my own, but he welcomed me into his home. And then he says, and he welcomes the whole church. 
What probably means is that if any Christian came through the area that, that claimed to know Jesus, he'd open up his home for him, even if they were a complete stranger to him and he didn't know them. Because the word hospitable literally means to love strangers. You and I both know in, in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality is like almost second to nothing. It is so critical because when people travel from one place to, to another, they just didn't have family everywhere that they could take in. There wasn't a lot of Super 8s or hotels or Marriott's. They, they had, people had to open their homes for strangers. And they seem to take much bigger risks than we ever will because most of us would never open our home to strangers. And yet this individual is, is one who is a host to Paul and host to other individuals. Hospitality, it, it's a simple act of friendship, but it, it's powerful because it values individuals. It doesn't sort of sit back and go make, you know, what we do is, oh, the home's not ready, it's not clean enough, we can't do all this stuff, and you know, we got a mess, and so we don't want anyone in our home. I know you've never said that, I've said it, we've said it, something like that. Because we get embarrassed because our home is kind of what's on display and we don't want people snooping or looking at how clean it is or how messy it is. But Gaius as an individual is kind of like, doesn't really matter. I care about people and I'm going to bring them to my home and I'm going to make them feel safe and secure and I'm going to care about them while they're here. And if that means using some of my resources to care about them, I don't care. Because they're family. They're, they're other Christians who are part of the faith and walking with Jesus. The scriptures re-emphasize this. Romans 12, 14. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek how to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because some have entertained angels unaware. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 10. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And so at the heart of this is that hospitality is a critical part of showing friendship to people, whether you know them or not. I mean, that's kind of the nature of community groups here at Oak Grove is opening your home so that you can welcome people into it and we can have a context in which we can develop relationships and care for one another. But the point for Paul that I'm challenged by is that he wasn't afraid to have friendships with individuals who weren't saved. Gaius didn't get saved through magical sprinkle dust. It was because Paul came in and he was willing to thrust his life into the space of people that didn't know Jesus and had the courage to talk about this Jesus whom died for their sins. And one of the great processes of true friendship, if we understand what it means to be a Christian friend, is I, we need to make space in our life to step into the world of people that don't know Jesus, whether they reject us or not, so that we might be able to travel with them with the hope that they will trust Christ. Because most of us think about friendships with people that we know and care about us, that we can trust, that we know they have our back. Paul understands that the nature of being the right kind of Christian friend in a lost world is making margin in our life to step into their world so that we might be able to show Jesus. And we've redefined hospitality as a refuge for us to avoid the world rather than to connect with it. And so Paul had these evangelistic friendships that he was willing to take whatever risks he needed to. There was a survey taken a while ago about how hospitable we were. 
It's a little old, but it was said that how often do you entertain guests for dinner? We don't even entertain our families for dinner because we're running 300 different directions. So we don't even sit down with our own families half the time. But anyway, it was back in 2005. Some 6% said once a week. 21% said once a month. 12% said more than once a month. 37% said a few times a year. And 24% said rarely or never. Our home, our home isn't open for business. <laughs> It's not our thing. And then he talks about Erastus, who I'll talk about workplace friendships. And the thing that's puzzling about this is there's either has to be more, one, more than one person named Erastus who's part of the community in the church there, or, because, or he's pointing something out by saying, well, he's the city treasurer. And you and I say, like, well, who cares? Like, what's the big deal about that? All these people probably had occupations and jobs. Why is he pointing this out about Erastus? Well, I think the simple fact is, is that Erastus has learned about his faith in a in, in, in certain way that Paul's trying to point out that he's trying to live out his faith as, as, a, part of a, as a government employee. He works for the city, but he's, he's committed to living out Christ in the community. Not just in the church, but in the community. And I suspect if you had this discussion, you'd say, listen, this is where God's called me. This is where God wants me to be, is, is in a secular city government job, hanging with people that don't know Jesus so that I can have a chance to share Jesus with them. I mean, what would be the point of saying that he works there, everybody has a job, what's the point? And I think he's an individual who may be more than one of them, but he's saying, listen, he... Just because he works for the city doesn't mean he isn't in ministry and he's not in mission. It's not about our position in the church, it's about our life in the world. And so that becomes friendships that are remarkable to have, to be able to network. I know some people have done it here. They, they, they network with other companies and whatever so that they can give people jobs and help provide opportunities for them but they're compassionate because it's clear that Erastus cares not just about what happens in the community of faith, but he cares about how it impacts his community. And he's willing to live it out there. And then Quartus. His name literally means fourth. So I don't know if he's the fourth born in the family, whether he's fourth on this list, but he literally doesn't say anything about him. Doesn't talk about his job. Doesn't talk about him hosting anybody in his family. Doesn't talk about his spiritual gift. Doesn't indicate that he's a leader in the church. Doesn't say that he leads worship. When I finished looking at that text, I was going like, well, he's a nobody. And yet Paul says, Quartus sends his greeting. Well, I don't know his story. He obviously has one, but he's not sitting around pouting that he's not recognized like the rest of them. Because there are no such thing as nobodies in God's family, in God's mission. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're at. What it, he doesn't have any of the recognition any of the others do, but he's saying, 
He's, he wants to send his greetings because he cares about you. I, uh, there was a saying, a proverb that I think is helpful as we finish. The man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Let me ask you something. I know that we're all worried about the kind of friends we have. When you're a parent, you're always worried about the kind of friends our kids make as they grow up. We have to protect them from certain people. It's kind of the evil that we live in in this world. But for many of us, what we have to learn to do is, am I the right kind of friend for other people rather than do I have the right kind of friends? I mean, as we mature and we get our identity anchored in Christ and we know how to walk intimately with him and the love of Christ is what compels us and it's changing the way I live and my character, I'm standing on pretty solid ground. And if I belong to a faith community, the idea of gathering together means I get to gather with my friends. Because even though we stumble through it sometimes, these people care about me. I know it's not the season for it, but I read a story by Mike Rocco who talks about an individual in the Chicago press whose name was Slats Grobnik, and he sold Christmas trees. And there was a couple that walked onto his lot one time, and he knew them from the neighborhood, but they were not exactly the most impressive couple in the world. They were hunting for a tree. He was skinny, big Adam's apple, not very attractive. She was kind of pretty, he says. Both wore clothes from the bottom of the bin of the Salvation Army. After bypassing trees that were clearly too expensive, they found a scotch pine that was okay, but one side was pretty bare, and it was pretty bare on the other. Then they picked up another tree that was not much better, full on one side, scraggy on the other. She whispered something, and he asked the owner of the tree lot, he says, look, could we take both these trees for three bucks? And he assumed that they're never going to sell anyway because they're a bit ragged, so he said, sure, that's fine. When he closed the lot that night, he was walking down the street, and he knew where they lived, and he kind of looked up to see if the trees were there, and he looked up, and he saw this magnificent full tree in their house, and he's kind of like, what in the world? So he couldn't help it. He went over and knocked on the door, and they opened the door, and they said, uh, hey, I was just kind of curious. That looks like a magnificent tree. Like, what happened to the ones that I gave you? And they said, come here. And they walked in, and he says, what we did is we took the two scraggy trees, and we took the bare parts and put them together and strapped the tree together, and together they made this big, beautiful-looking tree because it was so full you couldn't hear the, see the straps and stuff that held them both together. And, and he walked away, and he says, wow, that's a secret to friendship. You take two individuals that aren't perfect, they have flaws, they might even be homely, maybe nobody else wants them, but if you put them together just right, you can come up with something beautiful. I'm not going to ask you if you have those kinds of friends. I'm going to ask you, are you that kind of friend? Maybe it's being a light of Christ in the workplace. Maybe you're being a friend to somebody that doesn't know Jesus. 
Maybe it's your friends with some people who've walked the, the footprints that you've walked in life because they've gone through some pretty difficult circumstances that parallel what you've been through. But one of the most powerful things that God does is he takes broken, dysfunctional human beings and he ties them together in Christ and he can make something magnificently beautiful because they allow Christ to shape the relationship. And sometimes when we're on our own and we feel scraggy and we're drying up spiritually and we are not being very fruitful and we feel like we don't count, maybe the most important thing you can do is find somebody that's not the Apostle Paul, but somebody that simply knows Jesus as their Savior and learn to allow them to speak into your life and journey together and allow God to bind your life together so that something far more magnificent can happen than just you by yourself. Now for some of us as husbands, we need to learn to be better friends to our wife. Because sometimes the reason they feel really alone is because we're not being a very good friend. And sometimes, wives, we need to know that as standoffish as our husband sometimes, your husband sometimes can be, they really desperately need you to be bound to them because they're not going to be near as fruitful in Christ unless you're with them. The church is made up of broken sometimes homely, dysfunctional jars of clay that God binds together in friendships, not for our glory, but for his. Are you willing to be that kind of friend? Sometimes it doesn't take much. Sometimes it's just a text message or a phone call. Sometimes it means being in the journey with people for days and weeks and years so that they might rediscover the hope and the encouragement of the gospel of Jesus Christ.